A reading from Exodus 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each one of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. 
On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us today and that you would... Open our eyes to your truth. You would open our ears to your grace. You would open our hearts uh, to receive what you have for us. And that you would meet us in our places of need and desperation. And that you would sustain us in our wilderness journey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin with a, a quote this morning from the therapist Dan Allender. And this is what he writes. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert. Or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves the body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. And what Dan Allender means by desert is what the Bible calls the wilderness. Uh, So that we don't get confused, the wilderness in Exodus 16 was a desert. Don't think forests and forestry. It's a desert place. And the desert is not an easy place to live. Which is why throughout Christian history, the theme of wilderness is often used as a metaphor for particular seasons in the Christian life. You know what I'm talking about. It's those dark seasons of the soul. It's when, it's when what you thought you, you knew to be true doesn't seem so true. It's when you feel knocked off kilter and you can't make things add up. It's, it's those times when you find people who want to bring you a scripture very irritating. It's when you feel like you're dying of hunger and there's no food. You're dying of thirst and there's nothing to drink. Have you ever been in the wilderness? Maybe some of you are there right now this morning. Now, you can do some weird things with Bible texts and uh, allegorize them uh, like David and Goliath. Like, what are the Goliaths in your life? And what five smooth stones of victory has God given you, right? And that's garbage. But in this instance, the theme of wilderness is actually used throughout the Bible for the journey of God's people. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, we see that it is a metaphor for the entire Christian life. And here's how it's structured. The time between Christ's first coming and his coming again is characterized as a wilderness journey. That's Hebrews 3 and 4. Just like the time between Israel's release from captivity in Egypt and their entrance into the promised land was a journey in the wilderness. Now, that doesn't mean our whole life is dark and intense, the way we use it as a metaphor for particular seasons. But it does mean that we live in between the time of our rescue 
and our ultimate rest. So what was going on with God's people during that original wilderness journey? And what can you and I learn from that? Now, let's recap the story so far. God's people were in slavery in Egypt. They saw the plagues as Moses was raised up as a deliverer. They've been liberated from slavery. They've crossed the Red Sea. We saw that last week. And now they're in the wilderness, which is this circuitous route on their way to the promised land. And they're going to make a stop at Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the law. And here's what I want you to think about. If the exodus and crossing of the Red Sea were like the birth of Israel as God's people. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham and a family, and it kind of grew out of those families. But they're becoming a large people, and they're going to be set apart as God's chosen people to bear witness to the world. If the exodus and the Red Sea crossing was the birth of God's people, the wilderness journey is their infancy and toddler stage. And that's important to keep in mind. Because it includes all the fussing and whining that you go through with infants and toddlers. But it also is a season where God demonstrates his love and his faithfulness and his care. This episode that we're looking at this morning is characteristic of the entire 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. There's grumbling. There's testing. And there's God's provision and care. They're moving from Egypt to the land of promise. They're moving from slavery to the land of milk and honey. But in between, there's the wilderness. And as one person put it, no one wants to do wilderness. But wilderness is where you truly get God. So what I want to do is I want to start off uh, making a simple point. I'm not going to give them to you all up front, but we're going to begin with this. In the wilderness, truth is revealed. Truth about ourselves And truth about God. So let's start first with the truth about ourselves in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the facade gets pulled off. The self we project is dismantled. The wilderness strips away all our defenses and all our pretensions. And it lays bare all that we are. And it actually demands that we be honest with ourselves. And if we're honest with ourselves, what we'll discover is that all of us have grumbly hearts. Notice how the text um, spells this out. About six weeks into their journey, best we can tell, supplies are running low, right? They have livestock, right? But the food they've carried with them out of Egypt is running out, and they don't want to kill all their animals. That's their only wealth as they move into the promised land. There's no Costco to visit, by the way. They're growing tired and hungry, so they start to complain. But actually, the word that is used here is the word grumbled. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The whole congregation pitching a fit, which is what you and I often do when we are tired and hungry and scared. And grumbling is, is a technical word here, and it's used a multitude of times, not only in this episode, but throughout the Old Testament to describe the heart's of God's people. Grumbling is an accusatory complaint. Now, I think it's helpful to think about how grumbling is different from lament. I know uh, the women uh, uh, in our women's Bible studies have been going through Lamentations, right? A very important book in the Bible and a very important part of the Christian life is learning how to lament. 
But you know what lament is? Lament is pouring out your broken heart to God. It's actually drawing you toward him. God, I don't understand. God, how long? God, when? God, why? But grumbling is different. Grumbling drives you away from God. He can't be trusted. Why would he do that? There's a different spirit to grumbling than there is to lament. And when grumbling grabs you by the heart, you know it because you start engaging in delusional thinking. Notice what the Israelites say in verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, Egypt was the best. It was like an all-inclusive resort, which is delusional. In Egypt, they were slaves, and their babies were drowned, and their women were likely raped. You see, we all have a tendency to rewrite history, how good it was back then, and it's delusional. And when you're deluded, you start exaggerating the advantages of your former situation. Let's get back to the good old days. Grumbling leads you to delusional thinking. And grumbly, deluded hearts start hurling accusations. Notice the second half of verse 3. To Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know, you hear that people say, thanks, Obama. Like, that's not a political statement, right? This is, thanks, Moses. Thanks a lot, Moses. Pharaoh was better at taking care of us than you. Now, why are the Israelites grumbling at this stage? Well, they're grumbling for at least two reasons. And both are about forgetting. They have forgotten God's promise to Abraham, which we talked about last week. And they have forgotten that the reason God set them free was that they might worship him, that they might know him, that they might have relationship with him. The Israelites were experiencing spiritual amnesia. You know, we had someone in our congregation uh, just this past week who had global transient amnesia episode. Do you know how frightening that is? It supposedly doesn't come back, but you just forget like where you are and what you're doing and why you are where you are momentarily. And the Israelites are experiencing this spiritual amnesia, forgetting who God is and forgetting who they are as God's beloved people. When we forget who God is and we forget who we are as people, you know what happens? We get scared. We get really, really scared. We're afraid we won't have enough. We're afraid we won't be enough. We're afraid of looking dumb, of being ugly, of failing, of being exposed as a fraud or incompetent. Because we feel out of control and overwhelmed by everything. So we begin to grumble, which is to say we bitterly complain and we catastrophize. That is the nature of our hearts. And in the wilderness, that's often revealed. That that's where our hearts go. And as Moses points out, our grumbling is ultimately against God. There there is a vertical dimension to this. Notice verse 8. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Have Have you ever considered that? That dimension to your experience. That your grumbling might ultimately be against God. 
then in those moments of bitter complaining and catastrophizing, you might actually be saying, Pharaoh was a better father than you, Lord. The root of grumbling is suspicion of God's goodness. And it goes all the way back to the garden. He's holding out on you. He can't be trusted. You need to take matters into your own hands. But here's what's astonishing about this story to me. Is God doesn't immediately strike them down for their grumbling. Instead, God's first move, verse 4, is the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Because in the wilderness, we not only discover the truth about ourselves, we discover the truth about God. He hears and responds. Four times in this text, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 12, it says, God hears their grumbling. He's not off taking a nap. Right? He's not busy with something else. He's listening to the groans of his people. He's listening to the grumblings of his people. And he acts. And as the story unfolds, you see that this gift of manna, which is this mysterious substance, but it's meant to be a gracious sign of God's love and care sustaining a rebellious, grumbling people. This is who God is. And we keep returning to the question, who is the Lord? Because that's throughout the book of Exodus. But this is like a little glimpse of what we will see in Exodus 34. Is that God is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he wants Israel to know that. And it's going to take a wilderness experience for them to see. The glory of the Lord appears and provides, we're told. In the provision of food, they would see God's glory, his worthiness, his weightiness. And you see that in verse 7 and verse 10. He does this with purpose. What is his purpose, we're told in verse 12? That you might know that I am the Lord your God. He wants them to know that he is Yahweh, their God. He wants them to have a relationship with him. And that takes us to the heart of the book of Exodus. God rescues a people, not just so they can go wandering about and do whatever they want, but so that they will know him. And in knowing him, they will spread the knowledge of him throughout the world. Remember, we talked about the structure of salvation from last week. That's it. So in the wilderness, truth is revealed. We discover the truth about ourselves, but we also discover the truth about God. And here's the second thing I want to look at. In the wilderness, God trains his people. See, if if the Red Sea crossing, the exodus was the birth of God's people, and the wilderness journey is infancy and toddlerhood, this is God going to work, training up a child in the way that they should go. God will not leave his children immature. They're his babies. So he's going to raise them. And this journey into the wilderness, it's not an accident. This isn't a detour. We've looked at that. He's led them there, and this is part of his teaching. Did you you catch that back in verse 4? That he says, I'm going to do this that I might test them. Now, when we hear test, we think, oh, no, I'm going to fail. But, like, tests come in a lot of different varieties. Like, there's tests to, like, do do a health test, right? There's tests that are part of training regimens. Some of us don't like any tests, but tests are necessary if you're going to train. And what God is doing is he's using this very experience to train his people. 
And he's not just training their behavior, right? Get in line or you're going to get it. He's training their hearts. He's training their hearts to rely upon him and his provision and his promises. This is how the story goes down. Uh, There is meat provided for them at night. Uh, Later we learned that came intermittently. It's quail. Uh, You have a lot of fun reading about like, oh, like there's quail that get tired flying through there and you can catch them by the hand. Like whatever. I don't care. They show up that night. It's miraculous. But the manna is this crazy substance that God provides. It's this coriander seed, white, you know, like wafer that tastes like honey. And the manna comes six out of seven days for 40 years. And I want you to notice some things about this training regiment that he puts them through. They're only supposed to gather as much as they need. They're not supposed to store any overnight, except for the sixth day, when they take double and they bake and boil it so they have some on the seventh day. And the seventh day, they're not supposed to go looking for it, right? The, the, that's the training regimen that God is putting, putting them under. And he says, I'm going to test them to see if they will listen to my word. Verse 4. But I want you to notice something about this, that God is actually ensuring that these things are going to be followed by his own providential action. And that's important to notice because no matter how much you gather, it always comes out to an omer per person, the text says. If you try to save some for tomorrow, it rots and stinks. If you try to gather on the Sabbath, there won't be any. And as one of my friends put it, this is like bowling with bumpers. Okay, you, you know, when you're bowling and they, you're, you're first learning, they put the bumpers in, in the gutters, right? So you're sure to hit a pin, right? Because you can't go into the gutter, right? The bumpers are protecting you. It's like God has surrounded them providentially so that everybody's going to have enough. And on the sixth day, it'll double. And even if you try to go out and work on the seventh day, you're not going to gather anything. And guess what it's all for? It's that you might learn to rest and trust. This is a revolutionary moment in human history, by the way. is the introduction of a one in seven day rest for people. It's unheard of. But I want you to notice that what God is doing is he's training his people to trust. Same food day after day and will only last one day. So every day they're going to have to practice reliance upon God. You know what that is? It's training. In the wilderness... We begin to learn dependence on God. They weren't there because they took a wrong turn. They were there because that is where God led them. And that is where training is going to happen. And that's confusing to us. Because in our cultural moment, what we want is a shortcut. I heard somebody put it like this. That uh, our inner life goes like this. When we, we want change. We want to grow. We want to like be stretched. We're like, give me a book to read. They're like, wait, 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 hold on. Give me an article. And then it's like, no, 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 wait, give me a tweet. I want a tweet to change my life. But we all know it doesn't come that easy. It doesn't come easy at all. And that there is a practice to learning to daily rely on God. The Israelites are learning to pray every morning, give us this day our daily bread. And for 40 years, God gave it to them. Daddy, feed us. And he did. Every day. That's the way God has set up life is for us to depend on him. And most of us don't like that. Because we want as much security and control over tomorrow as we can get. And not just over tomorrow, but over 
the day after tomorrow, and the day after that. And when we combine our desire for control with our fearful, anxious, grumbly little hearts, what do we get? We get Silicon Valley. I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. We get our modern culture, right? (laughs) Where we are grasping for control and security in every conceivable way, only to discover that the manna melts and it rots. Our wealth melts and rots. And right here in the initial stages of Israel's toddler and infancy season, God is training his people to trust. One day the bumpers are going to be taken off. But right now, they're being trained. The man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And did you notice this? In training them to trust, he also calls them to rest. Verse 22, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. And this is the first mention that we get of the Sabbath since the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And it will become a part of Israel's law code when we get to Mount Sinai. And we did a whole sermon on that, was it last summer or the summer before? And in a simple way, you can just see that the Sabbath teaches that people are more important than their work or their productivity. But you know what the Sabbath also is? It's a sign of reliance on God. And observing the Sabbath is supposed to be a sign to the world. Can you imagine if people asking the question, which is the right God? Who has the right God? And you were to say, well, find the people who are resting. What would they see when they look at the church? And what would that even look like in a place like Silicon Valley? I I can't even imagine, and I'm going to just be open with you here. I can't imagine saying to someone, they say, how are you doing, man? I'm so rested. I've never said that. And that is terrible because it sounds ridiculous and it feels impossible. But one of the things God's trying to do early on with his people is saying, if you want to get serious about relying on me, then you need to rest. You need to trust that I will provide. And this kind of rhythm based on trust, it actually begins to bleed in to your week day after day after day. One person put it like this. If you're wondering how to include God in your day-to-day life, you ever ask that question? Like, how do, how do, I, how do I get more connected to God in my day-to-day life? They said, start with including him in your week-to-week. Rest one day. Rest one day. And you'll find that that starts to bleed in to every day of your life. If you grumble against God about being exhausted, would you remember that the Sabbath is given to you? And you notice in this text, verse 22 and 23, God supplies and pays for what he commands. There will be enough on on the sixth day so you don't have to work on the seventh. This is training. Uh, One scholar wrote, Obedience does not come at Israel's expense. It comes at God's expense. He has provided, and what he is training us to do is trust him. But I think one of the big things to notice here is if you never rest, you're acting like a slave. And slavery to harsh taskmasters is what God had rescued Israel from. Now, how how was Israel doing with this training early on? Well, we're told that many don't listen. They try to hoard, verse 20. They go out to gather on the seventh day, verse 27. 
And what we find in verse 28 is God says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments? How long will you refuse to listen and trust? And the the language in the Hebrew, by the way, is very similar to chapter 10, verse 3, when God says to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Israel's in danger of growing up to be just like Egypt instead of God's holy, beloved people, which means it turns out it's actually easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get the Egypt out of the people. So there's training. Do you know what God is doing in this season here? And what he's doing in our seasons of wandering in the wilderness. He is breaking us of our proud self-reliance. When the Israelites are gathered uh, by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and they're reflecting back on this 40 years, and Moses, uh, Moses is, is giving the words of the Lord to the people, we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 that this season was a God might humble his people. The wilderness is boot camp. It's breaking that proud self-reliance that we might learn to rely on the world. And what's the very next verse in Deuteronomy 8? Right after chapter, verse 2 is verse 3. So that we might know the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God is training his people to trust him and his word. And to do so, he rains manna on their heads for 40 years. You know what? The grumbling continues throughout that wilderness experience. And there's some twists and turns to the story. But the grumbling continues after Sinai. And the grumbling continues after exile. But the beautiful thing is this. Is it is also in the wilderness that we get to see the glory of God's salvation. See, why does God keep loving these grumblers? Why does God keep loving us in the midst of our grumbling? And the good news is this, because someone actually did pass all the tests for us without the bumper plates. His name was Jesus. Do you notice that when Jesus shows up on the scene, his first move after his baptism, his introduction at his public ministry, is he is driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days. And he's incredibly hungry. And the tempter comes to him and says, Here, just do what I say. You're the son of God. Do what you want to do. And what does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That that text is filled with echoes of Exodus. Jesus was led there just like the Israelites, driven by the Spirit. The same word for his temptation, pyrodzo in Greek, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the testing of Israel in this wilderness season. Israel is called in Exodus chapter 4, the Son of God, God's Son. He's raising up. Jesus is the unique Son of God. He's being tested around hunger and bread. But the difference is this. Jesus was faithful. He was covenantally obedient. He lived by the words that came from his father's mouth. As well as by the bread that came from his hand. See, your life will change 
and my life will change when we stop going to God just to get our needs met and make our life work better for us according to our agenda. And we start going to God to get God because we realize God is what we truly need and that he could be trusted. It's not money we need. It's not great vacations. It's not the perfect spouse. It's not tenure. We need God. We have to have him, which is why Jesus will later say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? God rescues us for relationship to him. But you know what? There's another text in the New Testament that's even better, and that's John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds multitude of hungry people. And they're coming to him saying like, give us more, give us more, give us more. And this is what Jesus says. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And they are like, where do we get this? And Jesus says, I'm that food. I'm the bread. And the bread that I give is my flesh sacrificed for the life of the world. Do you know what the response of the people was? Grumbling. Grumbling. Because that's the nature of our hearts. And friends, when you look at your life, and you might feel like you're in a wilderness experience, we all are in between the time of rescue and our ultimate rest. But if you feel like it's particularly acute right now, would you, would you be willing to consider that God is... God is often stripping away our false hopes, our false securities, so that we can see that what we really need is Him. And you know what else God is doing in the wilderness? He's correcting our crummy theology. Because we think if I'm living right, if I'm going to church, if I'm tithing, then God's going to make things go right for me. God does good things for good people. But meanwhile, you see Him blessing people who don't give a rip about Him. Don't be surprised about this. Those of you who are new Christians especially, so thrilling at first, but there's wilderness. And yet in the wilderness, we begin to experience the grace of God. God tested the Israelites. They pick up enough bread for one day, but then they pick up more than enough. And it rots on the sixth day. They pick up enough for two days. and They're supposed to rest on the seventh day, but they go out to gather. And so God just let them all die in the wilderness, right? No. He rained down manna. On their heads for 40 years. They were saying, you're an awful father, but he still loved them. And as the Apostle Paul writes, it is not our repentance that leads to the kindness of the Lord. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. How much more kindness have we received from the hand of the Lord in seeing Jesus, the Son of God, sacrificed for us? He lost his place as the favored son of God, so that you and I would never lose the favor of our father or our place as his children. There is nothing that you or I need that God will fail to give to us if we're his child. But we're in the wilderness. And we have to remember, we need to practice reliance on him. We need to trust his word. But ultimately, we need to look at the place where God has disclosed his glory. And the way Paul writes it in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not generously give us all things? This is God's word. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, which pierces uh, to the depths of our soul. 
And we need to hear it because we need to know you. We ask that, Lord, you would sustain us right now in the midst of our wilderness journey, whether that is just the wilderness journey between our rescue and our ultimate rest or that particularly acute season where it feels like our world has been turned upside down and inside out. Would you show us the truth about ourselves and the truth about you? Would you train us to trust you? But would you ultimately guide our our souls and our hearts to find our rest in the good news of Jesus and what he has done. Whether that's for the first time or the millionth time, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.